Hello and welcome to the For the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm here today with Brett Howell. Brett is a champion of environmental entrepreneurship. His mission is to catalyze teams to achieve breakthrough solutions to the systemic issues we face on our planet, influencing governments, nonprofits, startups, and global corporations. As part of his personal mission to end plastic pollution, Brett led the 2019 beach cleanup team at Henderson Island, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in the South Pacific, considered the world's most plastic polluted beach. Brett, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I think w- would be a great place to start, you, you mentioned that you are into breakthrough solutions uh, for, for the, this climate crisis and especially plastic that, that we're dealing with. Um, what I, I saw on your website, there's, there's a few things that you classify to make them breakthrough solutions. The first being that they have to get to the root cause. You have, the, you have this starfish story that many have probably heard, but you can, you can tell and you have a little bit of a different spin on it. Yeah, so the starfish story goes back to the days of an old man walking down the beach, seeing a young boy throwing starfish back and kind of scratching his head because there's tens of thousands of these starfish out there. And he asked the little boy, what are you doing? And the little boy says, well, I'm throwing starfish back and it made a difference to that one. And it's an age old tale that's been retold many and many different ways. I found Stanford Social Innovation Review, I think it was 2012, had a really interesting take on it that social entrepreneurs need to stop throwing starfish because we think we're making an impact by throwing one back while you're not solving at the root cause. So I very much, while it's an uplifting childhood story, see it as one of these, you need to go to the root cause of an issue and understand what's causing it so you don't become one of those people that's just throwing starfish. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, it makes us, it, it's tough because it makes us feel good when we're, when we're doing that, but sometimes if it is a Band-Aid, uh, you know, we are saving those couple, but if we went upstream a little bit, maybe we'd be able to save a lot more. Absolutely. So the second element of your of your breakthrough solutions, and, and one of the things that, that really spoke to me is that the solution has to be market-driven. So tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you. Market-driven to me means that you can be in control of your own destiny, really figure out as a company, whether you're nonprofit, for-profit, et cetera, what direction you're going, right? Corporate structure doesn't mean you don't need to make money. Even if you're a nonprofit, you still need to balance the books every month and turn a profit so you can be a sustainable business and be there for your constituents long-term. So to me, it's the logical way of doing things. It's an evolution for me, having worked at the Property and Environment Research Center out in Bozeman, Montana. They have a program or had a program called the Envirepreneur Institute. I was class of 2011, and they start you the first day out on Ted Turner's Flying D Ranch. You're surrounded by bison. It's this incredibly beautiful spot. The ranch itself is larger than the District of Columbia, which is mind-blowing. I lived in D.C. at the time and looked up the stats. And they talk about how Ted Turner created Ted's Montana Grill to create a market for his own bison, right? Because he's one of the people that wanted to ensure that you had these bison around forever. So that's an example of how these types of activities can work. Mm, wonderful. And then, then the last one is also actually a, a, a play on something that I talk a, a lot about is, you know, you have to say no to a lot of yes opportunities to make space for the hell yes opportunities. And, and you say, you know, the solution has to be a hell yes. So um, what is it that, that kind of sets that apart for you from, from the yes to the hell yes opportunities for these breakthroughs? A lot of it, honestly, is the partners and the people you're communicating with. You know, through time, I've been very fortunate to work across the planet, and the partnerships that really stand out to me are the ones that have similar communication approaches that 
understand how critical something is and are willing to build that momentum quickly. Others that, you know, hey, you send an email about partnership and maybe they get back to you in one to three months. You know, I've got better things to do with my time. Okay. So we've got we've got these three kind of elements that are important to you to, to create breakthrough solutions. And then I want to talk, you know, one of the things that you talked about recently at the, the Zoo's Environmental Innovation Awards and Symposium was about this Henderson Island cleanup. And, and just for, for context, I, I can link to in the show notes the video that you, that you showed. But, you know, really, uh, it, it's a very remote island. It's never been inhabited by humans, but you wouldn't know that if you came up onto the beach and, and saw how much how much plastic there is. And and really, really tough to see, uh, you know, all those all those elements of, of humanity, you know, the, the best and the worst of us uh, that, that are that are up on that island. Uh, and so where where was it that, that this first came to you as, a, as an opportunity for for uh, for an impact? Yeah, so it's an example of one of those breakthrough collaboration opportunities, right? Somebody in my network suggested I connect with somebody at Pew Charitable Trust that was thinking about this activity to Henderson Island. I didn't even know what Henderson Island was. I said, yeah, sure, let's have that conversation. And through that conversation, learning about Henderson Island, what they were trying to do, progressively built that relationship and was invited as the only American to join the team and lead the beach cleanup team. And and so when you're when you're trying to make this not just the uh, you know let's let's clean up this beach you know let's let's throw this starfish back in the water how do you then try to turn that into a, a breakthrough solution you know that can get at some of the root causes and hopefully prevent more of this from happening in the future? Yeah, immediately on signing up, I said I wasn't willing to do this if we were burning the plastic or burying the plastic. We had to get to what's called a circular economy solution, so we could have something positive to do for this, right? Henderson Island is a World Heritage Site. It was set up by UNESCO intentionally. It's a very unique place. It has its own wildlife that are only found there. So for me, it was not just a matter of saying, yeah, we're going to clean the beach. I mean, unfortunately, we know the beach is going to look like it did in five to six years unless we dramatically change what we're doing as humanity. So it was a matter of the number of work streams that were being executed is what really drew me to it. So yes, we were cleaning up the beach. We installed time-lapse cameras. We get a sense of how quickly is that waste going to come back. You know, and the whole idea of try and pilot things, we have a partnership with a large British organization, and we tried one of their demo cameras, and it didn't quite work, right? Okay. So... We were intended to have twice a day satellite uploads since we got back in June, and instead that camera is still taking photos but not uploading, right? So we basically have four static cameras. We also took a science team with us, which is very much about what are the plastics doing. This was the same team that was originally on Henderson Island a few years earlier, mainly focused on bird research and kind of on their free time, popped over to East Beach, which is the beach we're talking about on Henderson Island, and did some microplastic studies and did some assessment rapidly on the large waste. And that's how it was come to be that Henderson's the world's most plastic polluted beach, right? That was done through scientific peer analysis. So a lot of what we were doing was comparing that and saying, okay, that was the baseline. Where has it changed? So had a scientific team there as well. 
We also had world-renowned artist Mandy Barker with us. She's made her entire career on plastic pollution art. She's British and hard to believe that there's such a thing as a plastic pollution art career track, but she's done it. She's been in National Geographic and other magazines. So as we were cleaning the really unique items we found, we pulled out from Mandy so that she could then take photos of them. And that's turned into various art pieces already. She's recently been highlighted in Vogue and she's also putting together additional media. We also had a dive team made up of British Royal Marines that were there to capture underwater imagery and tell the story of Henderson because Henderson's also one of the world's largest marine protected areas in that Pitcairn Island set. We had local island participation with Jay. He was born and raised on Pitcairn Island. Pitcairn has 40 people. They're direct descendants from the HMS bounty and the mutiny activity that happened there. So you have sixth and seventh generation mutineers, so to speak, huh. living on Pitcairn Island. So I know it's a long answer, but there's a lot of work streams at play, right? We wouldn't have just done this if it was a beach clean effort. It was a beach clean that impacted all these other work streams and really brought it up to another level. So is it too early to say, has, has there been any any learnings from the cameras or, or, or if it is too early, what would be kind of like the best case scenario for some of the things that you could learn to then hopefully be able to go further upstream and, and prevent? Yeah, so we have some learnings. Part of what we did was look at the brands and materials that were on the island and a very small percentage of them had enough data on them to even tell you what it was, right? It was probably about 200 items that had barcode data or some level of something that could track it back to a country. So Mandy's still working on a project right now that's gonna put together an art piece, I believe, around that. But Stuff, which was the New Zealand-based media group that went with us, put together this amazing interactive and called out a few of the key items, right? So we had a hard hat from Pennsylvania. We had an unfortunately empty Bacardi bottle <laughs> from Puerto Rico. And specific unique items like that, right? Whiskey bottles from Japan, uh, light bulbs that we found unbroken on the beach. So we've started getting at some of the root cause items. One of the ones that I found most interesting and Fox News used an image of me in their highlight reel was one of these fishing crates. City on Henderson Island, company was from New Zealand. They could track it back, went out of business in the mid nineties and it was sitting on Henderson Island. So how many times did that go around the current? Makes me wonder, it's like, I wish I could trace a specific piece of rubbish. You know, if I could track yeah. a couple, it would be the light bulbs and that, and just say, where in the world did you come from? Like, why are you on Henderson Island? Now, is there anything, because I've read a few things anyways, where sometimes we feel like, you know, we're being very, uh, you know, being very conscious and and putting our things away in the right recycle bins and, and everything. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I see sometimes and it, and it just drives me nuts. I actually just a couple of days ago, I was behind somebody at a red light and I saw him throw something out the window. I was like, really still? And in, in 2019, people are doing that. Um, so I think there, there, there is sometimes where, where people are, are being, you know, careless about those sorts of things. But, I, but I've, I've read anyways that there's also a lot of cases where just somewhere in the, in the stream of things that, that things, things, you know, could even just fall off of ships, right? Or, or you know, it's, it's not really well, uh, well secured or, or even on a very small scale local level, 
I walk my dog every day around the block and you can see, even if it's not neighbors throwing their trash out, if it's a windy day on garbage day and recycle day that you, I, I sometimes bring a garbage bag and I can fill the whole thing up with, with trash and then a week later it's all, all back there again. So what are some of the things that need to happen even for those of us who are being conscious kind of in that, in that stream of, of the recycling or you know, talking about the cir- circular economy that need to, need to be uh, more transparency with, I guess? The recycling markets are incredibly complicated. I think that's part of the challenge. It's so specific, hyper-local of what item is recyclable, what's not recyclable, even just in the United States. And then you also get to international market forces, right? When China closed its borders to our plastic, there went a significant buyer of a lot of what happened, right? So broadly agree, it is really complicated with what people should do, right? And there's been efforts at messaging campaigns on a local level about what should be in a bin, what shouldn't be in a bin. I think infrastructure is absolutely key, right? If a community doesn't even have access to recycling, you know, I've got some friends that really are environmental warriors that are willing to drive their recycling long distances from rural areas, but most people aren't willing to do that, right? If you give them too much choice, they get confused and just chuck it in a bin. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of your points with Henderson Island, you know, 60% of what we found on the island was broadly associated with the seafood industry, right? So we had 1,200 fishing buoys we removed. There were still a significant number that we just physically couldn't move. I remember one landmark buoy where, you know, it was 150 feet long or something. There was just no way we could get it. It had jammed itself perfectly between a chunk of rock. So without excavating gear or, you know, dynamite or something, you're not going to be able to move that. So a lot of it's also personal choice, right? So since getting back from Henderson, I've entirely given up seafood. Prior to that, I at least ate some seafood using the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch app. But I'm just at the point of saying, this is so not transparent to me. And if you look at the oceans, the largest driver is fishing gear related items. And, you know, there's a whole disastrous story of what happens, you know, ghost fishing where fishing nets have been abandoned, keep catching. But a lot of it, I believe, is consumer choice of what we decide to use in our daily lives. And that eventually has an upward momentum on the companies that make the products. There's also significant responsibility, I believe, on the company's parts to say, hey, what are we choosing to make products out of? And can they be then created into another product through a circular economy strategy? All right. There's, there's so much that I want to dig into there. So, so you, you gave me a great, great jumping off point. Cause I, I do want to first talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, personal behaviors that, that you've become more conscious of. You mentioned, uh, not, not having seafood, right. Uh, you know, at least in the short term, unless, you know, they can create some more transparency. Um, what are some of the things that, that you've found personally, you know, as you've learned, uh, just in your, in your career, but, but also, you know, personally that, that you've been doing, um, that you think have the most impact that you'd, you know, most encourage, because I, I think we, we'd all like to be more conscious, but as you're mentioning, you know, there's a certain convenience factor and there's only so many hours in the day and all the, all these sorts of things. So what are some of the, the like biggest impact things that you'd recommend people that are, that want to be conscious of their, of their footprint? Yeah, it's a really good question. And 
what has the highest impact. You know, I think it can be argued different ways, but it's what makes sense for you and feels like a fun adventure, right? So I've very much looked at this not as sacrifice, but more as, hey, I'm gonna give myself a challenge, see what I learned from that. Of course, we're gonna have mistakes along the way, right? You have to be willing to kind of forgive yourself that. Nobody's perfect. So for me, my first challenge was meatless Mondays, right? And that's become more and more of a effort globally, but I just don't eat meat on Monday, right? So that in and of itself was a, okay, so I know I need protein, so what am I gonna eat instead, right? And because of that, came across companies like Beyond Meat, which have done fantastic job, you know, really reaching out to people beyond just vegetarians and vegans, right? I mean, they've gone public recently and their stock last I looked was still continuing to do amazing. From there, realized how much protein we tend to overeat in the United States and have found that when I'm eating animal protein, it's probably dropped by at least 50% Hmm. on the other days, right? So that's one example in terms of deplasticizing my life, right? To the absolute extent you can, you know, using reusable water mugs, reusable coffee cups, traveling with bamboo silverware, you know, even if you're going outside the home, you never know, okay, somebody tries to hand you, you know, a single use cutlery item, right? So I think a lot of it is about becoming aware and then wanting to kind of challenge yourself. So is it a straw item that you're saying, no thanks, pass on the straw and progressively getting restaurants to think about that? It has to be something fun, right? Because if it's not fun, you're not going to do it. I think that's a really interesting point. I never really thought about it, but I've I guess now that I am, I, I found it to be very true for myself. Um, I got solar panels a couple years ago, and last winter I was—I almost made it through the the whole winter without having to to use it. You know, I banked up all these credits over the summer, and I was like two weeks away from making it through the full winter before I started generating energy again. So that's like my my big goal for the, for this coming year is like how do I minimize a little bit? And then just actually over this summer, uh, there's a there's a local company called Impact Earth that that you know, we'll, we'll take your compost for you. And so once I did that and, you know, during the summer, you can shop at more farmer's markets and things like that. So you're not getting, uh, some of the, the plastic and the packaging and all that sort of stuff. And so I was like, okay, how, how little of, of garbage can I make? And now granted I'm a, I'm a single guy. And so, you know, it makes it a little bit easier, but I got it down over the summer. It was probably like a, like a baseball size worth of trash that I, that I would come up with in a week. And so, um, you know, trying to minimize that and trying to make uh, make a little bit of a game out of it. It makes it fun. Exactly. Yeah, it's all about, you know, whatever it is that motivates you, right? And it's fantastic to hear you did that. You know, in Atlanta, we have a townhouse, right? Just my wife and me, we don't need a larger space than that. Townhouse doesn't really let you compost, but I wanted to do something about food waste. So we found a company called Compost Now that I think is out of North Carolina. And every two weeks, they come pick up your compost, right? So there's a small little unit in the kitchen. You take that down a couple times a week to the larger bucket outside, but it lets you track how much compost you've created and you can donate it to charities or ask for your compost back, right? So it's things like that of where in your life are you having an impact? And I found progressively that makes you think differently, right? I love strawberries. I love blueberries. I can't find them anywhere in Atlanta, not in plastic. So Mm. I've just stopped eating them, right? So I choose to eat bananas, which I'm sure have their own challenges, probably coming out of Central America, but at least being smart about what you're choosing to eliminate packaging where you can. 
Yeah, yeah, because that's one of the things I'm thinking about now that, you know, the farmer's markets are, are winding down and I'm going to have to go to the, the grocery store a lot more often. And, and now similarly, like thinking about how much more of a challenge it's going to be. So that kind of leads me into the next question that I wanted to, to ask in terms of, okay, here's, here's some of the individual things that, that we can do. And, and quite honestly, sometimes it's, it's a shame that, it's, that it is, has become so inconvenient, right, to, to, to have to go out of your way to do some of these things because people are, are always handing you things and single use and you know, th- those sorts of things. So, so what are some of the things, because a lot of our listeners are, are business owners, um, what are some of the things that, that businesses should be focusing on if they're kind of moving in this, whether, whether zero waste or carbon neutral or whatever, but, but how, how can they start to move in this direction? What are some of the big impacts that businesses can make? For businesses, I am a huge advocate of starting with strategy, right? So looking at what you do as a business and aligning your sustainability objectives with that. Too often, there's a short-term idea of some stakeholder popped up. It really has not much to do with your overall business strategy, and you implement something. And then you just end up with this quilt patchwork of different things that aren't at all connected. If you start to begin with of saying, you know, what do we do? So if you produce a product, looking at your supply chain and trying to understand, okay, where do all these inputs come from? Is one of these inputs something that's a challenge? Is it a single-use plastic? Okay, how could we be innovative and work that out of the system, for example, or do something to ensure that that piece of plastic ends up back into recycling so you can have a circular economy solution? So I think it's a situational example, right? So if it's management consulting, probably the highest impact would be buildings and flights, depending on the strategy, right? If you're a manufacturing company of sort, it's probably your building and your energy use. So could you look at something like U.S. Green Building Council and really evaluate your energy usage? So it kind of depends on a situation-by-situation basis, but high-level, it's very much about strategy. In 2015, the United Nations came out with Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 of them, and... It's a great framework to use. A lot of literature has been out that they haven't been adopted as well as they were expected to be, right? So the whole idea is by 2030, we've solved all 17 of these issues. I don't think a single one of them is on track. All of them could use more participation, more money, smart minds against it. So if you're literally starting from zero, look at those SDGs, as they're called, and see which couple align best with your work. So for me personally, I look at sustainable production and consumption, life on land and life underwater, right? Those are the three that most tie with my efforts. I think either as a business or individually, if you're just jumping into this, you can't start with all 17. It's just scattershot. So which couple really speak to you, you can get your stakeholders behind and go after. Yeah, yeah, I think it's so important. I, I've I've been involved in a, in a movement called Conscious Capitalism, which is very much you know how how can business be a part of of that change, both with you know better better outcomes for for workers, but also you know treating the environment as a as a very important stakeholder. And I think business has to be a part of that. Obviously, with with partnerships with uh, with all all of the the, the for-profit, non-profit, and government sectors as well. But um, what are some of the things as we, as we you know, expand the lens again beyond a business to, to like an industry, uh, you know, you're mentioning like the, like the seafood industry. What are, what are some of the, uh, the industries that, you know, other than, you know, burning fossil fuels, that, that sort of a thing, what, what are some of the things that, that people may not think of immediately that may be surprises that, that are contributing either to, to waste or carbon footprint, those sorts of things? 
think our discussion of food is an interesting one, right? Like World Wildlife Fund has really taken an effort recently to look at food waste. And if you evaluated the amount of food we grow that is wasted and look at some of the climate impacts, getting better at not wasting food would have significant impact on other areas. I think as people look at their impact flying is becoming a bigger and bigger one, right? So I am very intentional if I have to get on a plane, right? I can't get to Henderson Island any other way. I mean, I could sail there. I'm not Greta and I don't have unlimited time and it's 7,500 miles one way from Atlanta. So it'd likely be a year long project. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to get on a plane, you know, do you really need to go? And of course, there's family reasons and everything else. But for me, it has to really align with the top values and not just be jump on a plane, talk in a convention center for an hour, pop back. It has to be a bunch of reasons to go somewhere, right? But I think that's a large one people forget about. Generally speaking, residential housing is another significant one. You know, what can you do, right? You were talking about winter coming. It's fantastic. You've put solar panels, but the simple things, right? Have you checked that the windows aren't leaking? A lot of local power companies will do complimentary assessments. And, you know, do you need more insulation blown in? It's sometimes the real inexpensive, non-sexy things that might have the biggest impact. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Things to, things to think about in, in your own home, um, you know, some, some of those things, but, um, I, I think it is part of that, part of that awareness. And, and also you're mentioning just a kind of a theme and, and you mentioned in your, in your keynote as well as kind of the importance of that, of that transparency, right? Is the, the more that we can, yeah, I mean, it's an old adage in business, the more, if you can measure it, you can manage it, that sort of a thing. Uh, but, but also I think that we all now have these, uh, broadcasting devices in our pockets, right? That can do videos and pictures and send them all around the world. And that, that really, uh, that can pull on people's heartstrings, you know. I, like I, without without the video of Henderson Island, it kind of seems like this far off place that I've never heard of, and, it, and it's hard to see that, uh, you know, in my mind and and, and make someone care about it. Um, so that transparency is really important, and, and I know there's there's companies like uh, like Patagonia, for example, who looks several uh, stages upstream in in their supply chains, and what what kind of carbon footprint is this having? What kind of impact is is this having? So, in terms of kind of reporting and and transparency, um, what what kinds of innovations are you seeing, or or what kinds of things would you like to see? Um, like for example, if we're going back to your your seafood industry example, like what what would what would you have to see uh, a company do to say they are not contributing to this waste problem? I would buy seafood from them. It's a great question. I'm sure the seafood companies out there wouldn't be psyched with this answer, but I'm almost unwilling to eat seafood. I mean, there's been efforts and attempts to have transparency in seafood and they've blown up in people's faces where it just didn't end up being transparent. There are so many issues with the oceans, right? I think it's Captain Paul Watson is quoted as, you know, you want to be truly sustainable, don't eat seafood, right? The things we're doing to our oceans through seafood it's a real challenge. You know, if somebody has hand caught it individually and I happen to know them, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably eat it. But that's probably about the limit to okay. it. Okay. Wow. Uh, are there any other industries? Because I, I know that 
I've seen some things like in the clothing industry, right? And, and you know, Patagonia is a, a, a good example where, you know, they're trying everything they've done. They famously ran that that ad of, you know, don't buy this jacket, you know, put that in the New York Times and, and everything of don't buy it if you don't need it and you don't need to have one in every color. You don't need to get a new one every season. And so I think part of that is important, you know, in, especially when, uh, you know, fast fashion and, you know, the, the, the new trends are always out. But then I saw recently like Zara, who was one of the one of the pioneers of this kind of fast fashion movement, um, is trying to talk about sustainability. So I think part of it, too, is a, it needs to be a mindset shift. And you've been talking a little bit about being a more conscious consumer. So are, are there things, um, I know, I know plastics is a, is a personal passion of yours, but, but are there things in, in the clothing industry or other kind of disposable type of, uh, that, that mindset that needs to change? It's interesting you bring up fast fashion because that's one that has certainly started a trend in terms of how people look at that, right? And I think it's obviously the next logical thing, right? A lot of materials in fashion are actually indeed made out of plastic ultimately, right? You know, it's plastic spun yarn. You know, the real positives of like what North Face has done, I think it was last year, they had a run of clothing where they cleaned up national parks, grabbed PET bottles from that, and then made them into Mm T-shirts, right? So that you're reusing and helping clean up an area, but not an expert in fast fashion, but I know it's one of the top challenge areas right now. So if we if we then just look at the circular economy, you mentioned it a few times, many of our listeners have probably heard of it before, um, may know a little bit about it, but but tell us a little bit about how that could be different. Because I think, I think part of it is, you know, that designing from the beginning. So rather than let's go grab this plastic that's washed up on the beach and turn it into a shirt, which is great, um, how do we start from from a place of of thinking about that full life cycle. So tell us a little bit about the circular economy. Exactly. Yeah, the circular economy, Ellen MacArthur Foundation out of the UK has been a big driver behind it. And it's really the idea that they've brought a group of companies and other stakeholders together to agree to international global goals for this. So efforts like how do you design out waste to begin with, right? So that instead of creating waste, we're instead regenerating ecosystems. And when we're going to create something, it's a continuous loop. So we're not still grabbing more petrochemicals, creating more plastic. You know, there's a significant amount of plastic on the planet that as innovation has come along, for example, chemical recycling, you can actually take these plastics that before broke down over a period of time, take it back to the polymer level and then create new plastic out of it. So it's really this idea of going back in some ways to our roots of not having a disposable culture, right? And looking at, hey, how do I use this item? And once this item's done with, can I rinse out the milk container? Will somebody bring that back to me? And I think it's in some ways like the slow food movement, right? It's going back to what was simpler. Yeah, yeah. I I actually saw um, there's a great NPR podcast through line. I'll link in the show notes, but they had a they had a great show recently called The Litter Myth. And it was part of, you know, how how some of the, you know, seemingly well-meaning, you know, rhetoric around, you know, don't be a litter bug and all these sorts of things. And and to some extent, yes, you know, like I like I mentioned earlier, it frustrates the heck out of me to see somebody throw something out their car window. Um, But it also kind of to to create this um, this mindset where it's all on the consumer, you know, to, to minimize their, their litter, to minimize their, their garbage and, and trying to look further upstream at, at how to create this more, this more circular economy. So are there any things that, that you've been a part of in terms of your, uh, you know, your in, 
envirepreneur, you call it, right? So yes. uh, any any either products either that, that you've been involved with or that, that you just know of that are kind of expiring, inspiring examples of this kind of circular economy approach? Yeah, really interesting question. I think circular economy is pretty young, right? There's a lot of different companies now that are involved with it. I'm really excited to be a mentor for Sustainable Ocean Alliance out of San Francisco and some other companies that are looking at these material alternatives, right? Some exciting groups coming out of those and had some interesting discussions at the event today with groups that are already working with large brands that are saying, hey, let's get the plastic out of this and make it so it's more reusable on a continual basis. No one company jumps out at me as being the pillar there yet because I think a lot of companies are still piloting this idea and how do we go back in time, right? If you look at straws, they started as paper, became plastic, and the United States is having to relearn how to make them out of paper, right? As Mm -hmm. this whole stop sucking campaign from Lonely Whale has taken off. So I think it's a lot of that type effort of companies thinking more altruistically through their supply chains and saying, okay, hey, we made this choice originally for a profit reason. Yeah, we maybe didn't think about the externalities of that decision, so how do we encompass this in a way that our socially conscious consumers now want us to be, right? As you pointed out, everybody has basically a media device in their hand. And if they want transparency and they see something they don't like, they're going to put it out there anyway. So why not design for it from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I know that this is kind of your area of expertise, but I, I from what I've read, uh, that the plastic is among the hardest to recycle. So even if you think you're, you know, doing everything you can and, you know, in, in recycling it, a lot of times because there's so many different types of plastic and thicknesses and makeups and everything, um, you know, it's a lot easier to, in many cases, to recycle certain metals or, or glass or things like that. So that's part of the reason that, uh, you know, even though plastic we move to, as you mentioned, for for convenience or the profit motive, uh, trying to move away from that, that's that's part of the problem, even when we're, even when we're doing our best to recycle them, right? Plastic is incredibly complicated, and it's been really – there was reasons people went away from glass, right, as we really took a climate focus and we said, okay, shipping a glass container some distance, and if you do all the calculations – There's a reason plastic, which is much lighter, won, right? But in those calculations, we weren't looking at the fact that plastic came out in the 50s and we're expected to have more of it in the oceans than fish by 2050, so 100 years after it came out. I really think it's now a matter of what is the right input, and it's going to require changes in supply chains, right? I've got some friends that have worked with beer companies, and as Companies in Colorado wanted to distribute to the East Coast. It didn't make sense to ship beer brewed in Colorado, driven across the United States in aluminum. So they opened up more local distribution areas and brewed it closer to the source. I have no idea what's going to happen in the future, but I'm excited about the innovation potential as people have seen this is something we don't want. So how do we use environmental entrepreneurship see this challenge as an opportunity and create the path forward. Yeah, it, it's so it's so interesting kind of just talking through talking through some of those things and and trying your best um, but but there there absolutely needs to be some some systemic change and and that's one of the things that I I wanted to get your opinion on as well is you know I am 
all for the the market-driven solutions. I think that we don't rely on that often enough. And I also think that at some level there needs to be some kind of some policy prescriptions and, and changes that that need to happen, whether whether at the government, you know, whether it's whether it's regulations or some kind of incentive system that that they're setting up. So what are some of the kinds of things? Is that something that you, any of your your research or your interests or just things that you found where um, recommendations, you know, if you had the magic wand that, that you'd, you know, try to make to have that that systemic change? Yeah, it's a great question. I think really to get to systemic change, we need an aggregation of all this, right? It's not going to just be policy. It can't just be infrastructure investment. It's not just campaigns against large companies that make plastic. It's all of those coming together. When I look at policy and with market-based conservation, many of the successful stories exist because there was a policy that induced a market, right? So through discussions with governments recently, it's very much for me been, okay, so where is your sphere of influence and what would make sense to create a policy around, since government is a policy-making entity effectively, that induces a market and helps solve these problems. Okay. So it's 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 a, a quasi-market approach. It's how to help the government uh, incentivize the right kind of innovation. Is that, that kind of... In some cases, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at water markets out in the West, right, those came to be because there was a policy around who owned the water, right? And then an entrepreneur got creative and said, well, all the water's being sucked out on these farms and then the river runs dry and all the fish die. So originally it was an innovative and out there idea to buy rights to leave water in the stream so the fish could still exist and reconnect these ecosystems. So it's that type of activity where, I mean, you know, Sometimes the policy is good, sometimes it's bad, but policy induces behavior change, right? That's what it's intended to do. And so if we're trying to design for something like plastic, not having such a restrictive policy that you limit innovation. I would like to see policies that help catalyze more investment, that get us thinking more creatively, right? I mean, plastic is around, it's part of our daily life. I'm not anti-plastic, I'm alive because of it. Had a medical issue in my mid-teens, that required hospitalization, right? So that required plastic. But what I don't want to see is the plastic end up where it shouldn't be, out in the environment. I mean, it's scary looking at the studies that are starting to come out that aren't really fully understood of how plastic is going to impact even our environmental and human health, right? If you ignore everything else, the health of the planet, just human health alone. Yeah, yeah, microplastics, things getting into our drinking water, all, all kinds of stuff that... Uh is is scary when you when you dig into it a little bit. But I, I wanted to one of the things you mentioned is kind of sometimes whether it's policy wise or even you know a, a movement, uh, some of the kind of unintended consequences, right? Because you could, you were talking about you know not wanting to ship beer, for example, across the country, and so or maybe there's a, a movement towards all right, how can we have uh, get more of our food from a local farm. Uh, and, and that sounds all well and good, but then you hear, oh, well, by trying to grow these tomatoes locally, they, by trying to grow them like in Rochester, New York in the winter, uh, you know, they expended more energy than it would have been for, for the transportation. So I think that part of it as well, uh, it, to, to look at kind of all the interrelationships of the, of the whole supply chain and, and what you're actually trying to solve versus getting too myopically focused on, on one, one element or one measurement. Exactly. Yeah. You can 
definitely do death by analysis on these type of activities. So as a consumer, as you're looking at it, I mean, it has to make sense, right? The choices you're making, it has to be simple. It has to be fun. From a business perspective, you have global supply chains now, right? They're impacted by international treaties, policies, who's buying and selling where. So it's incredibly complicated, both on the consumer and business level. But my effort and suggestions. Don't be afraid to start. You know, it's fun. Build momentum, see where it goes. You're going to learn something by starting your journey. Yeah. I think, I think that's an important piece. Don't, don't get too overwhelmed by it. Do what's in your sphere of influence for now. And then once you've taken care of that, maybe start to go to some of the other, some of the other impacts. But I wanted to give you a little bit of time uh, as well, because I was, I was reading through your website and, and I'll, I'll certainly link to it in the show notes for those that are interested in learning more. But there are several projects on there uh, that, that were pretty, pretty neat projects that you've been working on. Um, are, there, are there any one or two that you're especially proud of that you just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about? Uh, I know there's the Loon Project. There, there's a handful of things that are, that are pretty neat projects that you've been working on in your, your in, envirapreneur uh, career. Yeah, I've been really lucky to work on global projects. Coral reefs have always been just the love of my life. You know, I started diving at age 14 when my parents ran out of reasons I couldn't scuba dive anymore and have been fortunate to have more than 500 dives in my life. And coral reefs are just amazing. They're vibrant and it's so sad what's happening to them. So I've tried a couple different strategies kind of going to what we were talking about with policy where we know we can regrow coral reefs, certain types at least, in Florida and the Caribbean basin. So actually moved to Atlanta originally for a project with Georgia Aquarium that got funded through the Alex C. Walker Foundation, looking at how can you induce a market for coral reef restoration. And in the case of Florida, the policy was incredibly challenging and we were honestly probably too early, right? That's some of where I'm saying, don't be afraid to start. But because we started that effort, we helped bring together nonprofits that are down there and things are now going pretty well. You know, there's a thriving nonprofit market of people that are restoring reefs. The original idea there was to get it so you could have a protected area of reef that was degraded, maybe spend a couple hundred thousand, 500,000 restoring it and market it as a specific dive site where you could restrict access so you can make back your money. That's just not possible under how United States rules work. But I have continued to pivot and iterate around coral reefs, not willing to give up, right? <laughs> so it didn't work in Florida. There's aspects of the Caribbean that worked, but took it to Micronesia and had some successes working with another group out there called One Reef, right? Where different policy, as I was saying, matters. So in Micronesia, there's US law and there's chieftain law. And because mm. there's historic law, you can tell people how you can use the reefs and get more into what does community ownership look like. Most recently, I've been also working with a group called Earth Law Center that's taking a totally different approach to coral reefs and saying, what if we gave reefs and nature rights like a corporation? So again, sort of a nascent idea, the Galapagos have adopted something like this. And as you see issues have come up with coral reefs and restoration claims, Belize, for example, was able to make a much sig more significant claim in dollar figure to help restore a reef. So I will probably forever work on something coral reef related with the whole idea that by restoring them, you have local resilience. Another great project, as you highlighted, was this loon project, which is still ongoing. I've been fortunate to go to New Hampshire every year of my life. My dad was 
born in Boston, one of five kids. My grandma bought a house up there and it's where I learned to sail and water ski and do all these fantastic family activities. Probably 18 months ago, really started connecting with nonprofits in the area and learned that the loon, which is called the common loon, ironically, because it's a threatened species, isn't doing that great. And one of the contributing factors is lead fishing gear that is killing them. So found this group called Loon Preservation Committee. They had already worked with the state legislator and gotten a ban on a certain size lead that is killing the loons. But we were trying to figure out what do you do to get the lead that's still in distribution out? So we came up with a $10 market-based buyback incentive. If an angler brings in that lead to a shop, then they're able to get that lead out of circulation, spend money on getting the right type of sinker that's not going to impact the loons. And the first year, with minimalistic funding, we pulled 5,000 pieces of lead out. That lead from just me and Alex C. Walker Foundation helping support it, along with some funds from a couple of corporations in the state of New Hampshire, to a much more significant budget this year. And we're still wrapping up figures. But it's one of those great stories of sometimes a stakeholder you don't think is going to be supportive, and certainly the anglers weren't when this rule went into effect, they're now huge supporters because they're out there. They see nature. They want nature to be there. The loon, its haunting call is such a part of the state of New Hampshire. And by protecting the loons, you also protect all these other ecosystems. Yeah, that brings us kind of full circle because as you were talking, it reminded me of the of the starfish example, right? And, and sometimes, you know, if we make a, a, a little change like that upstream, it can also not only, you know, lead to to better outcomes and less less frustration, but can save a whole lot of money if you just switch out those sinkers rather than waiting however long to either, you know, if, if a species go, goes extinct or there's a big cleanup that needs to happen. Um, sometimes sometimes the, uh, the upstream solutions are, are, are cheaper as well, which is, which is always, a, always a plus. Um, the last thing I just kind of wanted to, to, to end off on is to hear a little bit about kind of what made you, you talked a little bit about, you know, scuba diving and your childhood and things, but what made you so passionate about, about sustainability or, or plastic specifically? You know, you mentioned earlier Greta um, at the Environmental Innovation Awards. There are some pretty inspiring young people that are really passionate about both environmental and, and social justice and, and in, in many ways, the ways that those, those two things intersect. So I, I, I remain ever hopeful when I see those young people, uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear kind of your story. And then if you have any I don't know. I don't know that they need a whole lot of encouragement, um, but any advice for parents to kind of, you know, encourage their uh, their 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 kids to be environmentally conscious? Yeah, I get asked this question, and there's no one point in time I can say, "Hey, this is when Brett became an environmentalist." Right? I grew up in Southern California in San Diego. Was always out in nature. Right? We were skiing out in the mountains, hiking. And just having these amazing experiences, right? My parents didn't have us in front of TV. We didn't have cable until I think my junior or senior year of high school, right? And early on, my parents also took us traveling. So my dad's a professor of medicine, University of California, San Diego, and he would get invited to conferences. And he would say, sure, I'll go, but only if one of my kids can come along. And he took a sabbatical when I was young, and we went to Australia, Indonesia, and Hong Kong. And seeing dynamite fishing in Indonesia and how disastrous that was versus how Australia 
manage their reef. And I was still too young to scuba dive at this point, but even then I could see it. So I still have a jar of that sand mm. in my home office to remind me of what I saw in Indonesia. And to me, that really cemented the love for the oceans. And from there, everything I've done, both academically and professionally, in some way, shape or form, has been around the sustainability movement. Yeah, I, I think that's so, I mean, kids are so naturally drawn to the environment and to animals and those sorts of things. And just to, just to expose them, I mean, not to, not to depress them, but to wake them up to the impact that, that, we are, that we're having on that and uh, you know the, the the potential of, of future future children to, to be able to enjoy that as well, I think is is just so important. But uh, thank you so much for making the time to come in today uh, and and talk a little bit about some of these breakthrough solutions and and reframe the starfish story for us to to try to go get to the root cause. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, and more importantly, thanks for uh, the great work you're doing for sustainability and for uh, plastics and breakthrough solutions for uh, sustainability and around the world. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful visiting Rochester and seeing everything the community is doing. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.